Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. In this episode, I chat with Tao Ben-Sahar. In 2015, I had the absolute privilege of being taught by Tal and I was blown away by his passion and commitment to bring happiness science to schools, homes and organisations. It is rare that you find a teacher that lives what they teach, not just teaching it, saying it, but living it. They are walking their talk moment by moment, and Tal is that teacher. He walks his talks and his stories show this. Tal is an internationally renowned teacher and author in the fields of happiness and leadership. After graduating from Harvard with a BA in philosophy and psychology and a PhD in organisational behaviour, Tal taught two of the most popular courses in Harvard's history, positive psychology and the psychology of leadership. He then taught happiness science at Columbia University. Tal is a prolific writer and his books are incredible. They have appeared on bestseller lists around the world and have been translated into more than 30 languages. In this conversation, we cover a lot in a short period of time. Tal shares with us the pillars of happiness the permission to be human, how to navigate the inevitable struggles of life, the difference between post-traumatic growth and post-traumatic stress, the relationship between money and happiness, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tal Ben-Sahar. Welcome, Tal, to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Great to be here, Meg. I am so excited. When I sat down to create this podcast, I wanted to have a variety of guests and I thought, who can I get on that can articulate some really complex topics in a way that just makes sense? And straight away, I'm like, Tal, Tal is the person who can share science and stories and strategy because we all need some strategy. And when I reached out to you, I had no idea if you would contact me back or what would happen. And when you said yes, I couldn't believe it. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for reaching out. (laughs) Absolute pleasure. So to kick things off, I would love to know from you, Tal, what made you so curious about this idea of happiness and happiness science? Yeah. So I became interested in happiness because of my own unhappiness. Uh, You know, everything that I'd learned uh, growing up was that uh, all you needed to do to be happy was uh, check a few boxes, you know, get, get into the right schools, later on get the right job, uh, you know, be in a, be in a relationship, uh, have, uh, um, you know, succeed in, in sports or whatever, and then you'll be happy. And I checked most of these boxes and um, I was very unhappy. Not only was I unhappy, I was getting less and less happy over time. Because I felt that even though I was doing what I thought was right, happiness was, uh, was, was getting further and further away from me. And that, then I decided to study it and to study it not through uh, you know, new age or self-help books, but rather through uh, academic research. That makes so much sense because so many of us feel that I'll be happy when I get that degree or when I get that top job. And it's also interesting to notice for a lot of us, as we're going up that path, we're becoming more and more disconnected to ourself and what our what we really want as humans and what brings us that deep satisfaction and happiness. So I'd love to know from you, how do you understand happiness? Like, what even is it? Yeah, you know, there are so many definitions of happiness. Uh, in fact, I think there are probably around 8 billion of them. Uh, that's it. And that's if we keep it to one a person. And the, um, the definition that I use, and again, it's, it's a working definition. It's not the only right uh, definition, of course, is one um, that comprises uh, what I call the five elements of spire. Um, and 
the SPIRE is an acronym that stands for spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional. And Maggie, if I could just go over each one of them very briefly to... Uh, uh, to describe them. I, I know that probably, you know, when you ask for a definition, you hope for, you know, one sentence, succinct uh, uh, response, but, you know, here, here's a longer one. Uh, so the, the, the S of the spire stands for uh, spiritual well-being. Spiritual well-being, uh, of course, can come from uh, religion, but it doesn't have to. It can come from a, a sense of meaning and purpose in life. It can come from being present, from being mindful in the here and now. That's when we experience a, a spiritual uh, sense of well-being. The, the second element of SPIRE is physical well-being, and that includes uh, nutrition and exercise, uh, sleep. Uh, these are, of course, very important for our happiness. The third element of uh, SPIRE is intellectual well-being, and that uh, that is about curiosity, you know, there's a research on the curiosity doesn't just uh, uh, enhance our uh, psychological well-being being it actually helps us live longer so curiosity asking questions uh, engaging in deep learning these are all forms of intellectual well-being the r of spire stands for the number one predictor of happiness relationships uh, and this is uh, relationships with uh, with friends, family, uh, romantic partner, colleagues. It actually doesn't matter, but we need uh, healthy, intimate relationships in our lives for happiness. It, of course, also includes relationship with ourselves. And that is about you know, self-esteem and, and self-worth that are important for happiness. And finally, emotional well-being. And that includes uh, both our ability to deal with painful emotions as well as our ability to generate pleasurable emotions like gratitude, joy, and love. So th these are the five elements of, uh, of SPIRE. Needless to say, we don't need all elements all the time, but given that it's a system, we can enter the system through any one of these uh, doors. Oh, I love that idea of opening doors because you may look at it and think, oh, I'm looking at my SPIRE and all of them are feeling a little bit low. And it's about let's open the door to one area and how can that lift me up? How can that bolster me? And I love that you bring that point up, Tal, that happiness and well-being is not about avoiding discomfort. It's not about avoiding fear. It is learning how to manage that. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, you know, so, so that's, an, that's, you know, the uh, part of uh, emotional well-being and, um, you know, maybe I can uh, just share a, a couple of stories here. Um, so one of the things that I teach, and um, it started off, you know, teaching myself, obviously, and then, um, you know, I draw on the research and teach others, is uh, the idea of the permission to be human, which means allowing in uh, any and all emotions. Because paradoxically, when we reject painful emotions, such as sadness or anger or frustration, these emotions only intensify. Moreover, when we reject painful emotions, we're not allowing pleasurable emotions to flow freely through us. So we're paying a very high price for uh, rejecting painful emotions, which so many people, so many people around us uh, do, and, and very often we do so ourselves. You know, when, when we tell a, a child, you know, don't be angry, we're not giving them the permission to be human. You know, when we tell ourselves, oh, you shouldn't be envious, we're not giving ourselves the permission to be human. And again, these emotions, envy or anger or sadness or frustration only intensify when, when we reject them. So, so, so this is what I, what, what I teach, what I've been teaching for years. And um, about maybe five or six years ago, I was running a year-long program Um and as part of this program, what we do is we met at the beginning of the, uh, of the year for about a week. And then the you know, students, participants went off and were online and, and they, you know, they watched a weekly lecture and did work. And then at the end of the year, uh, they came back or we came back for, for another week together. So it was uh, the second week of the year, meaning the end of the year that we got together and there, uh, you know, this is beautiful, uh, um, 
uh, Berkshire, which is you know, uh, border of Massachusetts and, uh, and New York State, beautiful area. We're in this retreat place called Kripalu. We're in the main hall, 200 people there, 200 participants, plus about 20 teaching assistants, all there. And um, we get to the, it was the third or fourth day of, of, of the week, and uh, a woman sitting on the second floor puts her hand up. And, uh, you know, and I, and I point to her and, and she starts to talk. And, and, and as she starts to talk, I realize that she, she's getting very emotional. Um, and um, she says, uh, Tal, I'm a, I have a PhD in psychology. I'm a therapist with a successful practice. Uh, I've been studying positive psychology with you for this year and, and, and even before. Um, I'm considered an expert in, in psychology. And yet sometimes when I sit with my clients, uh, I feel like I'm a fraud. She was essentially describing the imposter syndrome. Uh, I feel like I'm a fraud. And then, you know, she looks down, she looks up and she's crying. Um, and she said, because I speak to them and they ask for my counsel and, uh, and yet, and yet, I sometimes go into one of those dark places. And she stops, continues to, to cry. Now, what she meant by one of those dark places is that she becomes, you know, very sad or depressed or, or anxious or upset. Uh, she goes into one of those dark places. And, you know, I wait for a few seconds and, and then I ask her, uh, do you mind if... Uh, I asked the rest of the group a question. Again, she's sitting second row. There are over 200 people. And she said, sure. And I say um, to, to the rest of the people, please put your hand up if over the last three months you have been to one of those dark places. Put your hand up if you've been to over the th last three months to one of those dark places. And then I say to her, do you mind looking behind you? And she looks behind you and, and, and she smiles because, of course, every hand was up. And I say to her, we all go into these dark places. You know, I do too. My hand was up too. And then I suddenly see something in her eyes. I notice something. And I say to her, you don't believe me, do you? And she said, I don't. So everyone else goes into these dark places, but she doesn't believe that I go into these dark places. And that was a big aha moment for me as a teacher, because it made me realize that, you know, I talk about the permission to be human all the time and they get it. They, accept, they understand it. But there's always something in the back of their mind where they're thinking, yeah, I give myself the permission to be and until I become an, a real expert like my teacher. And then I won't have to go there anymore. And, um, and we pay a very high price for this mistaken belief, for this notion. Because if we believe, or if a part of us even believes, that it's possible to be exempt from these painful emotions, uh, we're in for deep sense of frustration and much more unhappiness than, um, than, than we need to experience. It is the, you know, the foundation of happiness is allowing in unhappiness. Whether you're starting off in this field or whether you're an expert, whether you're three years old or, uh, or, or, or 93 years old. That makes so much sense, Tal. And I remember myself, I was one of those people sitting in those week-long immersions and listening to your stories. And I had done my master's in wellbeing. I had done all of these things. And when you said the permission to be human, I remember my whole body just went, oh, like it was such a relief. You don't have to put on this show all the time permission to be human, to be flawed, to experience joy, sadness, all of it, and be with all of it. And I didn't have children at that time, but I remember you sharing stories about your children and when you used to say um, if they really wanted, I think it was a dinosaur, they really wanted a particular toy, 
and allowing them to have that emotion where naturally as adults we want to just shut that down. Oh, it's just a toy, move on. And so it's been such a gift now that I work really hard with my boys and people in my life to give them the permission to be human because it is so powerful. It opens a door to this whole new range of possibility and also a whole new range of emotions because, as you say, as we widen our tolerance for a reality, we can experience more and be with it. And so I'm so glad that you shared that story because it has such a powerful impact on the way that we live our life. Imagine what the world and the schools would be like if we gave ourselves just 5% more compassion and permission. It would, it, would, it would absolutely make a big difference. You know, there's uh, a lot of work in, the, in, uh, in Buddhism in, on uh, two levels of suffering. And today there is more and more of it in Western science. But in Buddhism, it's been around for thousands of years. And the two levels of suffering are as follows. The first level is, you know, natural, inevitable. You know, it comes when we experience loss or it comes from seeing people hurt or from being hurt. Uh, or because you know we, you know we we wake up on the wrong side, or because uh, you know the state of the world, you know there's suffering and there is pain, inevitable. The second level of suffering comes when we reject the first. So if I say to myself, "Oh, I shouldn't be anxious, or I shouldn't be angry, or I shouldn't be uh, frustrated," that first level of suffering is uh, is uh, enhanced. It's, um, it's, it's um, intensified. That second level of suffering um, is up to us. There we have a choice. The first level happens. The second level is where we have a choice. Do we accept or do we reject? And if we reject, we experience the second level of suffering. If we accept, as you put it, you just suddenly feel like a burden is, is, is lifted off your shoulders. You feel so much lighter. In a sense, you... Allow yourself to surrender to whatever comes your way. And by the way, when I was younger, I hated the word surrender. You know, for me, it was, uh, it was the same as, you know, um, resignation, giving up, not trying. Today, um, I realize just how important just surrender is, accepting is to, uh, to happiness, not resigning and, you know, not saying, okay, so that's how I feel and there's nothing I can do about it. Just accepting that this sadness or anxiety is inevitable. Now what do I do? Oh, that is such a beautiful distinction that, yes, things happen, stuff happens, and we're noticing that more and more. And what am I going to do with this? What is the meaning I make of this? Can I be with this stuff and make better choices moving forward? Yes. And, and, and I think, you know, Meg, you hit the nail on the head. The, the, the point here is choices. So, you know, we have a choice at the moment when we experience the pain and we can accept it or reject it. And the better choice would be to accept it. And then after we accept it, we have a choice in terms of how we act, what we do. So, um, you know, for, for instance, you talked earlier about, about fear. Uh, fear is natural. So if I accept the fear, that doesn't mean that the fear has to stop me. You know, if I, um, you know, and this is something, you know, that I share a lot in my, in my lectures, you know, I, I, for years, had a fear of public speaking for two reasons. One, because I'm an introvert. And by the way, that's innate that you're either born an introvert or extrovert or ambivert somewhere in the middle. Uh, so I was born an in, in introvert. And I had a few rough experiences on stage as a, as a kid, and that basically shut me off. And, and, and I didn't speak in front of an audience. And then, and then I, I realized that um, it's okay to be anxious and afraid of speaking in front of an audience. However, that doesn't mean I can't speak in front of an audience. You know, fear is a suggestion. They suggest, don't do it. But then I have... Another suggestion, which, is, which said to me for years, your calling is to be a teacher. Now, I have a choice. Who do I listen to? Do I listen to the fear set? Just, just stay at home and, you know, and, and, and away from the, from the crowd versus you know, share what you care about so much with the audience. And it's a choice. But the first choice is, do I accept the fear or not? The second choice is, what do I do now that I've accepted it? I am so glad you made the choice to share 
because you have created such a ripple effect in my life and I know so many other people's lives. And maybe that's the message for everybody to think about is we, that's a suggestion. Fear is just a suggestion. It's not a fact. It's just a suggestion. And what are the benefits of listening to that other voice? How can other people benefit from you stepping up into your power and living into that spire? Because we can really impact others. You know, we can impact others and we do. Because the interesting thing about, you know, whether it's um, courage, overcoming fear, or whether it's moral behavior, or whether it's healthy behavior, or whether it's... um, um, uh, the love of learning, wh- wh- whatever, the way we act uh, and even feel affects other people. You know, there's a research by, uh, by Professor Christakis from Yale University on uh, clusters, social clusters. So, for example, we, ha- we see uh, there are clusters of happiness. Happy people tend to, you know, be together. There are also clusters of smokers. There are clusters of uh, healthy eaters, of uh, exercisers. Why? Not because I'm looking, f- if I'm a smoker, I'm looking for smokers, or if, or if I'm happy, I'm looking for happy people. It's because by being happy or by smoking or by exercising, I'm affecting people around me. Behaviors, feelings, experiences are contagious. Goodness, generosity is contagious. So when we are um, striving to be at our best. And uh, when we are acting towards um, the realization of our potential, we're helping others do the same. Oh, isn't that so powerful? And I think about the school systems that I work in. You see those clusters. You see that in our students. You see that in the staff room. You see that in the parents at the front gate everywhere that idea that we are contagious and then also that gives us an opportunity to think about how can we mix things up a little bit how can we make different choices how can we create environments where people see different ways of thinking feeling and behaving and normalizing that so what we've talked about today normalizing permission to be human I remember the first time I tried it with my students I walked in and I said, I'm having a bit of a rough day. I just need to have a mindful moment. And they looked at me like I had lost my mind. Like, what do you mean, teachers? Like, yeah, what do you mean? You're just not onto it and pretending and the show must go on. And I learned that over time, the more I could just be human, the more they could be human, the better the classes were. Yeah. You know, this, um, th- this idea of normalising uh, painful uh, emotions uh, or normalizing struggle is uh, is so important because um, the the most difficult experience is is one of loneliness. You know, loneliness. No coincidence that there is a real uh, and, and and strong uh, connection between loneliness and depression. And um, when we hear that someone else, especially an authority figure, you know, like a teacher or a parent uh, or a manager um, is hurting, it normalizes the hurt and we don't feel that we're alone. And that's, uh, that's critical for overcoming difficulties and hardships. You know, there is a, there's a horrible word in, uh, in, in German, um, schadenfreude. And schadenfreude means uh, uh, glee or, or joy in the in the pain of others, and um, and you know it's a real phenomenon. And sometimes, again, permission to be human, we you know we experience it, and it's fine. But 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 there is something that is much more powerful and uh, and, and and important than 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 Schadenfreude, which is related. When we see others suffering, it's not the glee, it's not the joy that we experience in their suffering. It's that we feel that we're not alone in our suffering, and um, and 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 as I said, that that's that's an important part of uh, of healing. As you said, we're normal. You know, we're not. Uh, um, th- there's nothing wrong with us. In fact, the opposite is the case. There's everything right with us when we experience these painful emotions at times. Absolutely. And what I'm thinking about now is so many people are experiencing so much stress, so much heartache. And I love the work that you share around the difference between post-traumatic stress 
and post-traumatic growth because before you mentioned it in the course, I hadn't heard of it before. I hadn't heard of this notion, you know, however many years ago about post-traumatic growth. So I'd love you to explain for us what is the experience for us when we're feeling lonely, we're feeling like we're the only one going, people are going through redundancies, schools are just completely under pressure, feeling like you can't keep on top of it, where you're feeling really stressed or we've had that real curveball moment or a partner has passed away, something that really rattles us. How does that impact us moving forward? So there are two groups of people, generally speaking, when it comes to dealing with loss. Um, the first group is the strong one. You know, after a loss, they, um, um, they, they say to themselves, you know, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to overcome it. You know, they, 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 um, they continue business as usual. They say, this is what they would have expected uh, me to do, the people whom they, they lost. And we, looking from the outside, outside, say, wow, that's impressive. They really are strong. Good for them. And then there is a second group who breaks down and they say to them, they, they cry a lot and they continuously talk about the loss and they, they really can't you know, get their act together. And when we look at them from the outside, we're concerned. You know, I, I hope they'll be okay. And, uh, you know, this is terrible. And, you know, I'm really worried about them. So that's after the, the event, after the loss. But then if you fast forward, say six months, a year later, what you see almost every time is that group two or members of group two are doing a lot better than members of group one. So those who, 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 who broke down, who cried, who shared, who expressed were a lot stronger after a year, a lot better off than those who suppressed, who, um, who, who were strong, who didn't allow themselves to go through the motion. So the first step um, after a loss has to be acceptance and breaking down if necessary. And then, and then the question is, what do we do? Remember the two choice points. First of all, what do we do right after accepting the emotion? And second, what do we do after we accepted the emotion? And there are various things that we can do to help us grow rather than break down as a result of the trauma or the loss or whatever challenge we faced. First thing that's very helpful is writing about it. So there's research by um, Jamie, Jamie Pennybaker on uh, dealing with uh, trauma. And, and, and I'll, I'll share a specific study that is uh, unfortunately very relevant in today's world. And that is, uh, what do you do after you lose your uh, workplace, your livelihood? And he had people write about their uh, experience of being laid off, being fired. Now, it's, it's a real, you know, loss being fired, whether it's to your, you know, self-esteem, uh, identity, uh, there's also fear associated. What's going to happen now? Am, am, am I going to, you know, am I going to be able to to make ends meet? There's a lot of fear, a lot of anger, a lot of painful emotions involved. So he randomly divided people who lost their work into two groups. One group just went on business as usual. Second group, he had them write in their um, in their journal for three or four consecutive days, every day for about you know, 15 to 20 minutes, write about the, the, the loss, what, they exp- what happened, what they experienced, how they feel, uh, what their concerns are, what their plans are, just write. No one was going to see that. It was for their eyes only. Six months later, the group that had journaled for a total of you know, one hour, just over an hour in total. Emotionally was doing a lot better. Physically, we're in a better place and we're more likely to be working again than the, um, than, than the other group, just as a result of one hour or just over an hour of writing, of emoting, of expressing and sharing what, what they were feeling, what they were experiencing, what they were doing. Isn't that so significant to think a small pocket of time 
permission to express, permission to process what we're feeling has such beautiful outcomes in the future. Yeah, it's 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 remarkable because if you if if you think about it, you know there's more research by the same Jamie Pennybaker on writing uh, about traumas and those who wrote about their traumas whatever they were and you know people wrote it was for their eyes only but in terms of topics they wrote about abuse that they experienced uh, earlier on in life about a loss of a loved one um, about a loss of a, of a of a job whatever they wrote about. Even a year later, that, you know, four times 20 minutes had an impact on their psychological well-being and physical well-being. They were healthier overall. They, they spent le- you know, less time in the doctor's office compared to a control group who didn't write about their trauma. So, so journaling is an extremely powerful tool. It's free. It's accessible. Um, it doesn't take long. We just need to do it. It's so interesting because so many people know that journaling is so powerful and yet such a resistance around it. Have you got any tips or strategies for people who think, yes, this is a moment in time where I could really benefit with some processing, with some journaling, writing, but I don't know how to do it? Yeah. You know, uh, Dan Millman has a lovely, uh, he wrote the book, um, The Path of the Peaceful Warrior. He has a beautiful uh, paragraph in the book where he talks about um, bringing about change. And he says there are two ways to bring about change. And I'm paraphrasing here. The first way is uh, you you close your eyes, you visualize success, you focus on what you're going to do, you motivate yourself, you drive yourself yourself, you say to yourself, yes, I'm, I'm going to do it. You increase your motivation levels. That's the first way. You visualize success. That's the first way. The second way to bring about change, you just do it. And I'm a big, pro- you know, I'm not against visualization. You know, I do it myself. You know, I'm not against, uh, you know, music in the background, you know, you know, the Rocky music to motivate us. You know, I'm not against, uh, you know, self-talk, you know, great. But even more so, I'm for just doing it. Because very often, the, the, what we need is to just take the first step. Yeah, you can try and motivate yourself and convince yourself to, do, to journal. Or you can just sit down right now or, or, or in half an hour and, 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 and put your timer on 20 minutes and just write. Or don't put your time there and just write about whatever comes to mind. Or ask yourself, okay, I'm going to write about a difficult experience that I had or, or, a, or a challenge that I'm going through right now. See how it goes. Commit to three times, three consecutive days. See what happens. I love that. Sometimes we're just going to do it. <laughs> the strategy is just get started. And I'm really curious to know, if people are starting to look at their lives and looking at people around them, how can you tell if people are in this space where they've processed the challenge or they maybe haven't, maybe they've just sort of carry on, let's just keep going, no problems here. How can we find, distinguish that for ourselves and others? Yeah, you know, ultimately um, we're the only ones who can really know because we, we, we can't yet enter another person's experience, or we can parse, you know, if we have an fMRI and some, uh, uh, some other uh, sophisticated measurement tools. But generally, you know, we are the only ones who, who are in the know. And, and, and you know, this is where, um, um, you know, authenticity or, uh, comes in or, or knowing oneself uh, comes in because, you know, we're not fooling anyone when we put on the, uh, the facade, or maybe we're fooling everyone, but we're not fooling ourselves when we're putting on that uh, facade. And ultimately we are hurting ourselves. You know, we're so concerned about this image that we, that we have, you know, this, uh, those masks that we put on. And, you know, Meg, earlier you talked about how you, f- you felt so much lighter when you give, gave yourself the permission to be human. Another way of feeling lighter is to take off that armor 
you know, get rid of that uh, facade. It's, it's, it's weighing on us uh, and it's taking away our joy, our spontaneity, our lightness of being. And, um, and, uh, and it's, it's unbearable to, 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 to carry it. And so many of us carry it through, throughout our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And something that's coming to mind for me is a question that I'm asked often when I share the Spire model is, yeah, Meg, this is all great, but how does money fit into this? Because I need to have more money. Like if I had more money, I would be feeling better. I would be able to do all these Spire things. So I'd love to hear from you. How does money influence the way that we feel and function? Yeah, you know, uh, so um, my, my, my book, Happiness Studies, uh, came out recently and it was published by uh, uh, Springer and, and Academic Press. And um, it, when you publish through an academic press, you have uh, referees, readers, and they're anonymous. So I have no, no idea who, who, they, who they are. But one of them asked just this question, said, um, why is there no uh, uh, financial well-being you have spiritual physical intellectual relational emotional well-being what about financial well-being it's so important so central to um to so many people and um you know thanks to that uh, uh feedback uh, i added uh, uh part of a chapter to to the book uh talking about financial well-being you know the the the, the reader the referee even suggested that um i call it uh uh, affluence well-being and then it can be aspire so it will still work as an acronym even better aspire um and so i did i did not add it but but i did address it and um the reason why financial well-being is or the reason why i don't see it as as part of spire is because it's not as primary you know, when we talk about uh, spirituality, we um, there are many you know philosophers uh, who talk about us being you know spiritual uh, animals or uh, you know creatures of meaning. Um, when it comes to uh, you know physical well-being, you know we're, we are whatever we are. We are also we have our animal side, our physical side. When we talk about intellectual well-being, Aristotle talked about us as rational animals. So that's the intellectual, you know, relational well-being. Yeah, of course, we're relational, social uh, beings, social animals. Uh, When it comes to emotional, there are philosophers like, you know, uh, David Hume and, and, and Plato to some extent who talk about how central emotions are to our, how primary they are to, uh, to our life. But there are no philosophers or thinkers who talk about us being financial animals yeah, money is important to us, but it's not as primary as a sense of meaning, uh, as our physical self, as you know, rationality, as 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 relationships and and uh, as as emotions. Rather, money is a derivative. It's a second level of uh, of importance after these. And in fact, we know that people who uh, experience a sense of meaning and purpose in their work are more likely to do you know in you know, controlling for all other uh, variables, they're more likely to do well in their work and, and even make more money. You know, we know that people who are, uh, you know, in, in good health and who sleep well and, you know, have enough rest and recovery and who, uh, um, who uh, exercise, you know, they have more energy and are more likely to, um, to be able to support themselves, you know, f- financially as, as well. We certainly know that using our mind, our, our rational faculty helps, uh, certainly in the modern world, uh, as far as uh, um, financial w- well-being is concerned. And, you know, of course, working in teams is critical. Emotions are important to manage. Um, so money is a derivative, and yet money is also very important. In fact, we know that, uh, that not having our basic needs met essentially means that happiness is likely to, uh, to be elusive. That, uh, you know, it would be, you know, if, if it would be somewhat redundant and insensitive even to talk about someone who doesn't have enough, you know, food on their table, say to them, well, you should start thinking about the spire elements in, in your life. You know, 
let's first get bread and you know and water and, and shelter and, and basic needs before we talk about about happiness. And yet when it comes to to well-being, once basic needs are met, and I'm emphas- you know I'm going back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs here. Once basic needs are met, um, uh, money is not primary or, or, or financial our finances are not primary to our happiness. Many people think that they are. Um, but you know if there were we would be you know the world would be uh, um, um, replete with very happy wealthy people and it turns out that wealthy people are no happier than uh, than, than people who have uh, very little and again I'm not talking about the extremes of extreme poverty that is so interesting Tao, because I have worked in schools that have absolute affluence and I just talk about the educational Disneylands of schools and I've worked in schools that it's the complete opposite and I have seen the same amount of struggle at every school. I have seen in at one school you're checking um, that the students are eating because they're so stressed and they're worried about what they look like and they don't want to eat mm. the beautiful organic food in their lunchbox and then in another school, they don't have food in their lunchbox, and so we're making sure that they've got food in there. Wow. But wherever you go, there is struggle. There is this humanness that we're not tapping into as much. And I love what you're saying is we need to look beyond. Once we've got those basic needs met, we're human and there's more. There's always more to the story than what you see on the facade, on the brochure. <laughs> yes. And, Meg, you know, you, you, you're pointing out to a very important uh, phenomenon here with um um you know with schools from you know different socioeconomic um, groups so sunia luthar she's uh, originally from india and now a professor at columbia university new york um, has done work showing that you find the same uh, symptoms among the very wealthy kids as you find among the very poor kids. And when I say symptoms, it's things like high levels of anxiety and depression and uh, drugs and violence. You find very similar phenomenon on, on, on you know, the two extremes of uh, the spectrum. And um, the reason why you find it among the, the very wealthy often is because it has been too easy for them, or at least parents have tried to uh, to make it too easy from them to 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 try to uh, exempt from exempt them from struggling and and from hardship from from dealing with challenges, uh, because those parents are you know not not only are they wealthy they're usually connected and they they usually uh, are you know have, have say and are confident and they can solve many of the problems for these kids. But as Maria Montessori, you know, the great educator, once said, uh, don't do for children what children can do for themselves. And if the child can handle a challenge you know, herself, let her do it. If a child can, can deal with, uh, you know, with a social situation himself, let him do it. Yes, that is so powerful. And it's probably also an invitation for us that we can do a lot of things. You know, when that have that suggestion of fear or no, don't do that, what will people think, to just do it. We need to step up for ourselves too and be advocates for ourselves. And because I I've just had this curiosity at the moment, feeling like we're in this state of complete overwhelm and avoidance constantly. Um, we, we are because, um, b- because we're afraid. Of uh, of struggling because we're afraid. Going back to your 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 idea, we're afraid of that we're not normal. Uh, we're afraid that something's wrong with us, and we need to remind ourselves that you know this fear and this these struggles and these challenges they are normal. Uh, it's 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 uh, a life without them that's a, that's a fairy tale that is not normal. It's not real. Not attainable. <laughs> Absolutely. So when we see those Disney movies, they finish when real life starts. <laughs> exactly right. It's exactly right. Whether, it, whether it's you know whether it's uh, you know the relationships, you know the live happily ever after. Again, that's that that's in the movies. Real relationships are wonderful and amazing, and they contribute to our overall happiness and 
there are struggles and conflicts and disagreements and uh, and 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 times when you know we want to tear our hair out or our partner's hair out. <laughs> so uh, and 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 you know that's life. And the sooner yeah. uh, and the more and the deeper we accept it, um, the more likely we are to to enjoy true, real love, a true, real life. Oh, Tal, you have just opened up our hearts and minds to this whole new way of being, starting with acceptance and permission to be human. I'd love to wrap up this conversation with an invitation for you to finish off four sentences. <laughs> Let's go for it. So, okay, um, question number one, I am inspired by? Um, my mother, my father. Um, by people who struggle and overcome the struggle. Absolutely. Number two, when life feels hard. Um, I shed a tear. I reach out to the people who can uh, make uh, the hardship bearable. Number three, an underrated skill is? Um, hard work and persistence. It is the mother of all skills. Oh, absolutely. And number four, our final one is I am looking forward to. Um, here I'll, I'll quote C.S. Lewis, to be surprised by joy. <laughs> <laughs> Tal, you have just opened our hearts and minds. I am so grateful for this conversation. I have learned some things for the first time and I've remembered some things that you've taught me in the past that I've forgotten about. And I am so grateful for you taking time out of your ridiculously busy schedule to share with us and to share this message of the Permission to Be Human. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Meg. And I'm so glad you are um, uh, sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, yourself with, uh, with the world. Grateful to be here. <laughs> well, as one wise man said to me six years ago, sometimes you just got to throw your backpack over the wall <laughs> and you may not know how to get it, but you'll find a way. So thank you, Tao. See you later. Bye-bye. Wow, wow, wow. Tal has certainly given us plenty to think about. I remember one of my coaching colleagues saying, a really good conversation is like a chew toy for the mind. It just keeps you going. You think about it over and over again. And this is one of those conversations. It gives us so much to think about different doors to open, reframing different situations. And just imagine what our homes and schools would be like if we gave ourselves 5% more permission to be human, to experience pain and suffering, and then making choices to move forward. Three things that really stood out for me from this conversation. Number one, the foundation of happiness is allowing in unhappiness. For so many people, they think of positive psychology and well-being education as just all happy, all upbeat, all fantastic, rainbows and unicorns. However, it's not that at all. It's about all the colours, all the emotions are normal, are healthy, and how can we process them and not get into a habit of suppressing and numbing? The next one is when we're striving to be at our best and acting towards realising our potential, we're giving permission for others to do the same. And how important is that in our school systems? For young people to thrive, they need to see thriving adults. They need to see adults that are giving themselves the permission to be human, the permission to take care of themselves, the permission to struggle. And how powerful was it when Tal said when an authority figure lets other people know that they struggle at times, that others don't feel alone. And I see this time and time again. The educators that I work with, they feel like they're the only ones who aren't on top of it, that they're not keeping up. Everybody else seems to be on top of it and I'm the one who's struggling. I can tell you now, teachers, it is not true. 
Nobody is on top of it. No one's got it all done. Teaching is an unfinished business. It is never finished. So it's about how can you create some borders and boundaries around your time so you can show up with that energy. You can be in relationship with your colleagues and your students and families because you've got that energy to give. So before you go, I would really like you to stop and take a moment and think about the following two questions. From this conversation, what is one thing you want to remember? What is your seed? What is your pearl? What are you taking away from this conversation? Number two, what is one action you can take in the next 24 hours to improve your well-being? Because we know good intentions are simply not enough. And Tal said... Just do it. What can you just do to take care of yourself? People have been asking me, Meg, how can we work with you? What do you do? How do you work with schools? So there's a variety of different ways and I'd love to share with you a few of them now. Number one, I can come in and give a keynote presentation. Understanding the human side of well-being, what all humans need to thrive, to really feel good, and function well and relate better. Number two is workshops around a particular topic. If there's a topic that you'd love to explore in your school, I love to do hands-on, practical, integrated workshops that make sense. And then I have three signature programs. Number one, Energy by Design, a wellbeing program for educators. Educators that want to take their personal and professional lives to the next level. And that happens through the course of a term. And that's a private group that work together. So that can be teachers from all over the country and the globe. The second program is Thrive by Design. And this is an in school wellbeing program for staff. Schools can choose to do it with educational staff non-teaching staff or all staff together, creating that shared language, creating an environment to think about that human first and the role second. The third program is Impact by Design and this is the program for Year 12 student leaders. If you're looking for a leadership program for students that makes them more aware about their thoughts, feelings and actions and how they're impacting others, this is an incredible program to have a conversation about. To keep in the loop with our latest events, special announcements and teacher-proof ways to feel good and live well, subscribe to our well-loved Thought of the Week, your free dose of wellbeing education and inspiration delivered directly to your inbox. To support the show, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes and share this with your friends, your family and colleagues. My greatest hope is to generate more meaningful conversations that allows us all to move forward with a little bit more comfort, a little bit more courage and a little bit more compassion. All the links from this episode will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening to an episode of the School of Wellbeing. This episode was proudly brought to you by Open Mind Education. Open Mind Education is committed to sharing wellbeing education that makes sense. To learn more, visit the website openmindeducation.com. There you can sign up for the free five-step energy guide to help boost your energy so you can better navigate the ups and downs of life. Thank you for listening and I look forward to sharing more lessons in the School of Wellbeing next week.